In this week's episode of Startups with the Rest of Us, I'm joined by Ruben Gomez as we run through listener questions covering topics like marketing approaches that are working today, moving from five to 10 employees, SaaS longevity, and several other questions. This is Startups with the Rest of Us, episode 484. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, a podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups, whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Ruben Gomez, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. It's a Q&A episode, one of the listener favorites. We've got a bunch of really good questions today, and I'm, I'm happy to welcome Ruben Gomez back on the show. You may remember him from an interview we did a couple months back, but he started BidSketch, which is proposal software. It's a SaaS app. He started that back in, I believe it was 2009. He was one of the early SaaS bootstrappers. And then over the past couple years, he's been building another product called DocSketch, which is electronic signatures. And he's experiencing quite a bit of success with that as well. Ruben is a wealth of knowledge. He's a very thoughtful founder and he just meticulous and disciplined. You know, I I say that in some of the intros here. He is almost the definition of those things. He's detail oriented. He's very thoughtful about the direction and the moves that he takes with his companies. And he is someone who... I would bet on any day because he does things in such a repeatable fashion and has a wealth of experience under his belt. So I'm super excited to have him on the show today. Before we dive into our conversation where we answer a handful of listener questions, including several voicemails. I think we had three voicemails today. Before we do that, I wanted to remind you again about MicroConf Connect. Go to microconfconnect.com. It is MicroConf's year-round always-on Slack channel. And we're currently accepting applicants uh, It's for founders and aspiring founders and folks who want to be in the self-funded and indie-funded community. In addition, we've had several new reviews over the past couple months. I won't bore you by reading them on the show right now, but if you have yet to give us a five-star review or to leave a comment, you know, if the show has been helpful for you, if you feel like you've gotten value over the the past many years we've been doing it, uh, we'd really appreciate a five-star or a couple sentences. It helps us stay motivated and uh, keep cranking the show out. So with that, let's dive in to listener questions. Ruben, thanks so much for coming back on the show, man. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I uh, I think you have some good insight on a lot of these questions today. Our first question is from Will. And I, it's actually a question that I don't think you and I have a lot of insight into. So I've called in a remote correspondent to help us out with that. The question is, are there any good places that you know of to pick up more stuff on affiliate marketing. One thing that came out of this past year is that I can write a lot faster and more effectively than I thought. I'm not convinced that writing code is even my strong suit, even though lots of people tell me it is. I'd like to explore options in this area a bit more, but I'd like to borrow your BS filter for a minute. The trouble with people teaching affiliate marketing is that they're also affiliate marketers and the signal to noise ratio is brutal. Thanks, Will. That's been my experience as well. I, you know, Ruben, before we recorded, you mentioned that you haven't been in the affiliate marketing area for a while you never know but i like i like that comment that most of the people selling courses are affiliate marketers as well so it's really hard to know what's legit exactly i think you're dead on will and so what i did is i tapped a friend and tiny seed mentor microconf speaker taylor hendrickson who you know does exist in that space a lot of b2c stuff and affiliate space and let's throw that over to taylor hey thanks for the question will Again, my name is Taylor, and I've been doing affiliate marketing in one form or another since before the Panda update in Google, which for you non-nerds out there is almost 10 years now. 
You're completely right in that most people out there who are, quote, teaching affiliate marketing actually aren't good at it themselves or just regurgitating the same information they've seen or have posted billions of times that doesn't actually help anything or anybody. So for that reason, I actually really don't have any good courses or resources to point to on affiliate marketing who aren't just hawking the same stuff everybody else is, but want to instead provide a little bit more perspective or way of thinking about affiliate marketing that I think will help guide you in the right direction you're looking for. So the main core of affiliate marketing is the same main core as normal business you get into. It's solving a defined set of problems for a defined audience. So when you look at who's doing that well in affiliate marketing, look at places like Wirecutter. All they're doing is recommending the best version of whatever the problem people are coming to the website for in exchange for the commission. They know that the only reason they have an audience were bought for untold millions of dollars by the New York Times is because they provide amazing value to the people coming there looking for solutions to their specific problems. So I'd recommend the same thing for anybody looking to get into affiliate marketing. How can you provide value to a very specific audience with very specific problems by recommending things that you would actually recommend to a friend or a loved one, not just what pays the highest affiliate commission or just random things you're trying to do to make a quick buck. People see through that really quick. And if anybody is promising those one-click riches or anything that seems a little bit too good to be true or actually doesn't stand the test of, you know, will this last for another five years, completely run the other direction because they are probably a charlatan. So I know this doesn't quite answer the question you were asking, but hopefully gives some perspective as to how to think about this industry better. Now back to you, Rob. Thank you so much, Taylor, for being our on-site correspondent for the affiliate marketing question. Our next question is, a voicemail around new modes and methods of marketing. Hey, Rob. Wave to Mike. Uh, my name's Donal, longtime listener. Uh, you've both kept me going through tough times, so I really appreciate that. I'm a recent returnee to my home country of Ireland, but I've been in tech networks and security for a long time, uh, back at house. I built my first self-funded SaaS app in 2018. It did live technical screening of engineering skills and engineer skills, but I uh, failed to get traction for a ton of reasons. Uh, I somewhat intentionally did things backwards, like built it first uh, as I was new to Rails and web apps. So I was learning as I went. I failed at marketing, failed to get paying customers, albeit I did demo for some large and small orgs and experimented with a whole host of uh, cold and warm methods to get leads. Uh, so after nearly giving up, I ended up pivoting pansift.com a few months ago to a SaaS GitHub app in the deception tech space. So it now automatically honey tokens uh, your deploy branches. Effectively, it's kind of like a breach detection app for SaaS and infrastructure code that uh, enables attacker detection in minutes rather than months. But there's some customer education required for both security teams or engineering teams, and I'm trying to figure out positioning and pricing, but my traffic is currently almost non-existent. So as I restart my marketing efforts, I'm struck by the recent vibe I'm hearing on the podcast and elsewhere that an email list, an existing audience doesn't really cut it for SaaS any longer. So apart from one-to-one, hand-to-hand combat, customer by customer, are there any other new or non-traditional avenues I should or could be exploring for marketing rather than content marketing, SEO, PPC, and giving talks, doing podcasts, or going to conferences? Any help or guidance? Much appreciated. Love what you're both doing. Thank you. So thanks so much for the question. I think I, I want to chime in real quick, Ruben, before I throw it over to you. I've heard a couple people quote back to me that like on the podcast, um, I've said that having an existing audience doesn't help. 
And I really want to clarify that because if you have an existing audience that is a B2C, I'm sorry, is a B2B focused audience, and they could potentially be, you know, a customer of your SaaS app, I think there's huge value in that, especially if you have 10,000 or 30,000 on an email list. When I talk about this audience thing not being the end-all be-all of, of SaaS is that I've seen the kind of B2C marketers have a large audience of kind of wannapreneurs or folks who are, you know, just looking for that that opportunity to make a million, the make money online crowd. And then they try to launch a SaaS app for them. And they realize that none of them want to pay and the churn is through the roof. And there's, there's a bunch of mess with it. And, and that SaaS is really hard. It's a lot harder than selling info products. That's more of what I'm saying or trying to say is like, if you have an info product audience and you're making hundreds of thousands a year, and you think that you can switch to SaaS and make hundreds of thousands a year, I've never seen anyone do that well. Right. So do you, do you, does that make sense? And do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I completely agree that sort of the internet marketing uh, space where basically most, it's usually info products where it happens a lot. Selling in that way, uh, selling to people that are trying to buy uh, educational courses and other info products is different than selling a SaaS. So yep, uh, I've never seen it. I've known several people that have tried to do it that had big audiences that were successful with info products and really usually struggle when it comes to, you know, selling the SaaS just because it's, it's different. Yeah, I agree. I think the one example that I can think of that worked was uh, Clay Collins with lead pages. But it was, man, it was all annual plans. It was pretty high pressure sales. If you went to their webinars, it was really marketed in a very specific way. And frankly, they struggled with that longer term. You know, that's they, they got big quickly, but then they, that had its own drag you know, on the business. Yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple that have done it. That they've been not. It's not everyone, but most people are not going to uh, be able to do it. Um, the other one that I could think of is ClickFunnels. Um, what's his name? Uh, Brunson uh, something. Russell Brunson. Yes. Yeah. So to Donale's question, what do you think about? I mean, he mentioned a bunch of stuff. You know, he's saying content marketing, SEO, pay per click one-on-one, I think he was meaning like cold emails, speaking at conferences, going on podcasts, right? And in my, like, all that stuff still works, right? Right, right. It does. Some of it is harder than it used to be. Like paid ads uh, are generally more expensive across the board. Content marketing, back in the day, you could do a volume, sort of a volume thing, just publish two, three, four, five posts a week. And the more you publish, the more um, traffic you got, so in some ways it used to be easier, but things have changed and it's, uh, I'm not sure that I'd say that it's a lot harder. It's a little bit harder, but it's it's also different. So it's about like just getting educated on what's working nowadays, uh, I think is part of it. But I think one of the things that he mentioned was that he was trying to figure out positioning, pricing and things like that. And I don't know about you, but when, when I hear something like that, I'd be kind of hesitant to start start looking at channels that are that are a lot of people aren't using, that aren't proven. Because in my mind, I, I would need to figure out that I can sell this product, who the customer is, how does the customer buy, that this is going to work, that, this fun, that I have a funnel that kind of works before I kind of start exploring other channels and, uh, you know, channels that, that are a little unusual or something like that, right? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It sounds like he's in customer development almost still. Now, maybe his product is is to the point people can use it. But if you don't have positioning and pricing down, then yeah, I wouldn't, I would really wouldn't start marketing yet. I would be doing a lot of sales. Yeah. So a lot of people equate the two as, as the same, but they're very different. Like I, I see sales as kind of really a one-on-one 
act, even if you draw in all the leads through marketing techniques, then the sales, it becomes conversations. And that's where, yeah, in his case, I'd be looking to have a lot of conversations and try to pick out their language to, to figure out positioning. Yeah, you learn so much from those conversations that later help you do marketing uh, in a better way. Otherwise, you're just sort of guessing. You know, I'm not, I don't know this category. So maybe the, if this category has a lot of competitors and they're doing really well and it's pretty established and you, you know that this type of product works, that's a, I think that's a different situation to where you can have more conf, a little bit more confidence. But it still pays to sort of the, do that upfront work, I think. Right. And this is where if if I were in Donnell's shoes a year ago, I would have been building an email list. I would have been trying to build that launch list of people who are interested in this product. And everywhere I went, I would speak about it, whether it's podcasts or speaking in front of a, you know, an audience or whatever. And then you have that, whether that list is 200 people or whether that list is 2000 people, then that's your, that's your farm, easy farm for customer development, you know, where you just have tons of conversations. If he's starting from a cold stop, that's, Definitely not where I would want to be, but almost everything he listed still works today. Cold email, content marketing, SEO, pay-per-click, podcast tour, speaking. It's less scalable, but it can get you in front of the right people. And then the only two others that I would throw in that are in kind of my mental shortlist and that I see working with microconf folks, tiny seed folks, are integrations, like integration marketing, where you get both sides to promote, which you were the first, first person I ever saw do that well way back in the day, probably a decade ago now. And then the other one is, and it really depends on your space. This would be higher priced um, B2 enterprise, but it's trade shows. It's, it's going and being in a booth. And I know that a lot of us roll our eyes at that when we want to be self-service SaaS, but I will say there's more than one company I am, I'm deeply involved with that is killing it with trade shows and they're absolutely worth uh, you know, every dollar they spend. Yeah, I've always known that people that have apps or that serve customers that are a little bit older school, I would say, and they do really well in those. Cool to hear that those are doing good still. I know, and there are obviously you know, many others. I always go to the, I have a, a long list in a Word doc but, uh, or in a Google doc, but I also refer people to the book Traction by Justin Maris and Gabriel Weinberg for just a list. I think there's 20 in there. The tactics that are, that are in there, the book's a few years old now. You know, they may or may not work specifically, but that's kind of a laundry list that I would start from if I had nothing in, my, in the chamber, so to speak. Yeah, I think maybe one thing I'm, I would mention for him, given that his product is technical, is maybe looking at uh, what some people are calling uh, engineering as marketing, like free tools is a big one. We've had some success with that uh, where we get a lot of traffic doing that. I've known other people that have done really well with that. The only thing that I would say about that is that a lot of developers might get excited about those and think that all you have to do is build a calculator or a free tool or whatever and put it out there and you're just going to get traffic from it. But you actually, it's, it's a product. You have to actually, like building the tools, maybe 20% of it and then 80% is promoting it, marketing it. You have to figure out how you're going to get traffic with it. So for us, it was SEO. First figure out, okay, these are the keywords that we're targeting. This is the traffic that we're going to get from it. And then build out the tool and uh, promote it to, to start getting that traffic. Brian Harris from, I think this company call, is called uh, Growth Tools now. It used to be called Video Fruit. He has a lot of free tools. And his approach is very different from mine. His approach is uh, partnerships and uh, paid acquisition to promote the free tools. It's working really well. He's written a lot of, about it. I recommend uh, checking out his stuff. 
It's a good suggestion. If you are marketing to engineers, then working in public, a la Adam Wathen or Derek Reimer, basically on Twitter posting stuff once a day or twice a week or whatever with code snippets. Uh, you know, developers love that kind of stuff, recording short screencasts of you actually coding something up. I think that's that's a uni- it uniquely works in that space and almost nowhere else, you know, maybe with designers or something. But yeah, I think related to that, uh, something that work, probably works with uh, almost any uh, product in, in any space is basically look at who's doing a good job attracting that type of customer. It doesn't have to be just uh, related products. I, I really like looking at things that are just different. So I have a SaaS, but maybe I'll look at somebody who's running a podcast who who does a really good job of attracting that type of audience or somebody who's running a downloadable tool or a different type of SaaS that's not competitive in any way and see what they're doing. And it's always amazing what what you'll learn from it. So thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is a voicemail about the most common employment arrangements in early stage startups. Hey, my name's Sean. I've been listening to your stuff for a little while now. I'm not a founder yet, but I love everything you guys do on the podcast and through MicroConf. Uh, I'm hoping to find a project to start soon, but for the meantime, I'll keep uh, listening and thinking. So anyway, uh, my question is, and you may have covered this before, so if you have, apologies. But if you haven't, what are the most common employment arrangements with early stage, no or low funding startups that you typically see? Good question, Sean. I believe we have discussed this before, but it was likely hundreds of episodes ago. So, Ruben, you have thoughts on this? Yeah, generally when you're starting off, you don't you don't have a lot of money. So most people that I know, including myself, uh, start off with contractors, part-time, then full-time, no um, equity, even when you bring on full-time people, no health insurance uh, early on. It's uh, being really efficient with the money that you have. Later on, a little bit later, once you start growing a team and stuff, still no equity. I think the thing that I've been hearing a little bit more uh, nowadays is that some people are, are exploring like profit sharing a little bit more. But, you know, at some point you had health insurance in there. Right. When you have enough money to think about it. When you typically, I mean, I think for us, it was when we were through maybe three or four employees and... I agree with you. It was part-time contractors for me for years, you know, and then you hit a certain point where everyone's full-time. It kind of makes sense to have, bring them on board. They have a bunch of institutional knowledge. You start paying them W-2, it's more expensive and you do start offering some benefits. I think the profit sharing is what I've seen done most in the bootstrap space, just because, I don't know, some bootstrappers are really averse to giving away equity or it's just complicated, you know, complicates things to have anyone else on the cap table. Right. If I have an LLC, if I wanted to do that for my company. I'd have to change that, wouldn't I? No, you can give away units. You can give units. Yeah. Vesting is a little, you can do RSUs, which are like restricted stock. Wait a minute, those stock units. I think, I believe there's restricted units of LLCs and the vesting, it just isn't as straightforward as a, you know, as a thing. So that's the other thing is like, I really haven't seen, you know, people who haven't taken any funding. I'm trying to think if I've seen anyone who's done like stock options versus just an equity grant that vests over a few years, even that's pretty rare. And most of it has just been either nothing or it's been profit sharing, I think is the general rule in our space versus with the Silicon Valley, you know, with a venture-funded startup, there's options everywhere, right? That's the that's the currency. Right. Back in the dates, and still pretty good, uh, Peldy wrote a good uh, post about profit sharing. So if, if anyone ever wants to uh, explore that, 
I know a lot of people have, have used that as a model for uh, the way that they're doing their profit sharing. That's the one I refer everyone to as well. It's kind of the best write-up I've seen. So thanks for that question, Sean. I know you had another one and we're going to roll that right here. I have another question, which is I'd love to see what the number of hours per week worked is sliced by company maturity or age. I have some assumptions about sort of what curve or that might look like of sort of founders who are, you know, in the microconf community trying to also build a lifestyle and maintainable sort of business. Again, thanks for everything you guys do. Love listening to the podcast. And I know you already said you get this a lot, but uh, I love the variety. The variety is great. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Yeah, that's a good question. And in fact, I have asked our the statistician and data scientists who analyze the data to do that analysis. So hopefully maybe next week or I don't know, in the next few weeks, I will have that data and I will discuss it on the show and um, kind of address it then. Uh, hi, this is Daniel. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Um, So my question is about the transition from being a small team where I run everything to, you know, a still small team where I simply can't do that anymore. So I've been selling a word add-in since 2009, took on first employee 2015. But this year we've completed our transition from being sort of a one-off permanent license to being an, an annual license. And suddenly in the space of six months, we're going from a team of five to a team of 10 And this just sort of changes everything. So, you know, we suddenly have a staff manual and suddenly it's crazy that people send me leave requests, which they always did before, but now they have, you know, they have line managers now. And it seems crazy that I'm still processing expenses and and like a dozen other small things like that. And I'm finding it quite hard to get help or guidance because everything I see is written for companies that are either smaller than us or larger than us. So my question for you is, knowing that this transition is hard, and you've mentioned on the show several times that it is a hard transition, what are the things you see that are most likely to break? What systems should I be looking to put in place? And how do I avoid just becoming a glorified admin person? Thanks for your help. Thanks for that question, Daniel. And Daniel also sent an email where he said, uh, of the 10 people on the team, the breakdown is him, six engineers, one customer success, one part-time QA, one part-time growth marketer, and one admin. So with that, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So when I first heard it, I was going to say that, I, I don't know, I know a lot of people struggle with the people side. It's not something that that I have struggled with a lot, maybe because before I had my my product, I managed a group of people and I went through all the stages from, you know, from it just being myself to uh, three people, five people, 10, you know, all the way up to like past 30 people. And I, I studied a lot uh, throughout all of those stages. But thinking about it more, I think it, it is, it can be a little bit tricky when you get to like, let's say from five to 10 uh, versus five to 15 or five to 20. When you're at 20 people, 15, it's a lot more clear that you can't do everything yourself. You can't be as involved uh, yourself. You have to depend on others. When you're in that sort of like eight, nine, ten zone, it's a li- maybe it's a little tricky because you can technically do it. You can kind of have most of those people reporting to you directly, but it gets tricky because you know you're so busy feeling uh, like an admin and doing all the, all this stuff and just managing people. So I would uh, I would probably say like 
mindset is one of those things. I would think about your team being bigger than it actually is because it probably will be bigger soon. And uh, the things that you need to do to manage effectively to have, a, you know, you can't be managing everybody directly. Breaking um, your people up into small teams, having other people on your team lead and own their positions are really big, big things that it's hard to run a team of that size um, without doing doing that and then be having time to do other things. Those are just some of the things that, that I think about that. Also, read. I see a lot of people in, in our space feels like they're constantly they're constantly figuring this out for the first time. That there are like decades of information about managing teams, and a lot of it is useful. And it doesn't have to be specific to startups or a certain size. Some you know a couple books that traction from um, I forget the other author, not the not the marketing one. Um, I've heard is pretty practical, and a lot of people seem to like it. That's what I've heard too. It's the, I forget the author too, but he, it's the entrepreneurial OS or EOS. If you search that in Amazon, it'll get you to the book. Right. And just from talking to people that have read it, a lot of the stuff that they've implemented based off of that book is stuff that uh, I've implemented over the years. So it sounds really in line with, with a lot of the way that, that people really, especially in our space, operate their businesses at the, at these sizes. So check that out. I also like One Minute Manager. That one is one that I've really liked. Now I'll read every once in a while. And it's traction by Gino Wickman. So I agree. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And the, actually, I made notes, you know, as I was listening to the voicemail. And one of the first ones I said, it, when he said, what system should I put in place? It's have managers that are not just you because you cannot have 12 direct reports. You know, right now you have nine or maybe you do have line managers, I don't know. But a mistake that I made with Drip is that everyone reported to me the whole time. Uh, there was a bunch of reasons. There, there were excuses why I didn't do it is really the bottom line. And it took a toll on me. And it was some, it's something that I wouldn't do again. I think something else that I noticed is when I look at your lineup, it's very product heavy. You have no salespeople and you only have a part-time marketer out of 10 people. To me, that feels off. I would consider, you know, can you grow the business a little faster if that growth marketer was full-time or if you had a salesperson, the reason leads are still coming to you is because you don't have anyone else doing sales. I would consider in the short term, typically customer success people are often pretty good at sales. They may not, you know, without a quota and all the stuff, they may not be as good as if you went the full process, but customer success people know your product. They know how to talk to people. That is, you know, what we did when we only had one one customer success person. She did both those roles. And I think that was a good move we made. Another thing I would think about, you know, specifically to the phrase of how do I avoid becoming a glorified admin, I would seriously consider like at what point here do you need to hire uh, even a part-time like director of operations or director of HR? And it seems really early to do that. But if you're running your own payroll and you're, you know, thinking about your own books and you know, your, your accounting and you're dealing with the kind of the, it's all the state or, you know, local governments with the taxes and the, uh, there's always the unemployment. And then there, you know, there's like three different accounts in every state where you hire someone and it's so hard to outsource like Gusto or any of these payroll providers. They say they do a lot of it, but they don't do that stuff. You know, you need a PEO, at least in the U S to do that. And that's a real, it, that, that becomes very expensive. So Another mistake I made is I wished I'd hired someone to handle a lot more of kind of the day-to-day ops. You know, in the old days, they called them an office manager. They did all that stuff. You know, it kept the personnel files and 
did a lot of the kind of payroll, the bookkeeping, the accounting, the invoicing, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, you know, all that. They were just, you know, everything was kind of under their purview. We don't have all those things necessarily if you're selling software, but I do think that finding someone really competent who you can hand that off and completely delegate it, not someone you're telling what to do day to day, because you already have an admin, but, you know, is that admin competent enough to, competent or experienced enough to really come in and take charge? Or do you need to go out and find that ops person to get yourself out of that role? So thanks again for the question, Daniel. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from longtime listener, Mr. James Kennedy. He's also spoken at a couple microconfs. He says, it's clear from the number of people writing into the show with a million dollar or more SaaS businesses that the community has really come a long way. I'd like to hear your thoughts on where to go after you've replaced the day job. If it's become a grind, then selling your app seems obvious. But if it's not a grind, what's next? There's always the fear that it all goes south. Most are probably overinvested in a single startup that works. Who have you seen that has handled managing this risk while still running their company? And how do they do it? James. And he says, P.S. The podcast has never been stronger. It's still great to hear from Mike, but the extra tiny seed tales and variety of new guests has invigorated the whole thing. So thanks for that, James. But to his question, you have thoughts on that, Ruben? Yeah. I mean, he said after quitting the day job, I'm assuming it's way after because right after you quit the day job, it's still pretty early. And, um, you know, it's basically at that point, grow the company. But after growing the company, maybe for a couple more years, getting good revenue, getting people on board or, or not, depending on the company. Yeah. So it's uh, some people sell. And some people, this has really always been interesting to me. Some people run their companies like they're going to be around forever. It's really interesting to me that there's that mindset in our space where things are changing all the time and companies are, are dying. Like in that question, the line of like, I don't remember exactly how it was phrased, but something about like that it can all go away at some point. I have that. I know a lot of people that also have that sort of thought. But then I also I do know other people that it's not even a thought for them, which I find re- really interesting. I think that's not so good. I'd say it's cool if you want to run a company for a long time, but at some point, I think it's really important for the founder to take some money off the table in some way, shape, or form. So you know, if you don't sell, then sell sell part of the company. Or what I've done at, at periods of time is basically use use the company almost like a cash machine. And, and if it's really profitable and you're efficient with uh, how you're you're acquiring customers and all that stuff, that's that's I know a couple of people that are that are currently doing that as well. But I think sort of being in that stage where you're you know not that profitable, you you have a lot of employees for the amount of revenue that you're bringing in. And sort of running that company, uh, running the company in that way for for a long time, and expecting it to be around forever, and not taking any money, uh, you know, off the table, it's a it's a really risky way of of doing things. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I was going to say the same thing. I mean, there's selling. It used to be, it was really hard to sell these small apps. There was no market for them. There was no quiet light, FE international empire flippers. I mean, it was, it was person to person. You'd go on a website and you'd get one times your annual revenue or something. And it was great for buyers, but really bad for if you wanted to 
to exit, but there's so much money coming into this space now, both through these brokers, but also just strategic acquirers where they actually do come in, strategic or kind of private equity buyers, if you're over a million, where they will pay you revenue multiples now. So, you know, you sell a business doing a million bucks for two or three million. That's crazy. You know, it's doing a million bucks and you're making... Uh, you know, after payroll and, and all your expenses, you're making 100K or something because you're growing so fast. And yet you sell that for two or three million. This is a, I have, I've seen this happen now. You know, Josh with Bear Metrics, I, we talked an episode or two ago how he got an offer for 3.75 revenue. You know, it was a $5 million, $4.95 million offer. That certainly doesn't happen every day, but it is, it is more, it's a lot more common than people would believe. I'll put it that way. Soon as you go above north of one million is where that happens. So, selling I think is uh, obviously I you know I've sold a bunch of companies. Um, I've either sold or shut down every company I, you know I've ever had. So I'm not saying you should or shouldn't sell, but that used to a it wasn't an option. Then it became an option, and now you know what you just said is selling part of your company, selling twenty percent. Obviously, look for similar valuation to a partner who is a, still a minority partner, doesn't have control, and it's not venture capital. It's for you to literally take the money off the table. Because a founder running a million dollar app that let's say is worth, you know, worth quote unquote, someone might be willing to pay two and a half million for it. If you could sell 20% for half a million dollars and put that half a million bucks in the bank, personally, I would have slept way better at night when I was running any of my companies. And I wish that that had been more of an option. It is now becoming more of an option. Um, there are folks who have, who have, set up funds now. It's, there's only a handful. It's still an emerging thing, much like the Indie.VC tiny seed stuff that's still this emerging kind of frontier. There's also this kind of partial cash out equity that I'm, that I'm seeing happen. So I think it's an intriguing, it's an intriguing idea. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, I'm glad that uh, those types of options are, are available nowadays. Like back in the day, it was just kind of like, um, and this is still good for, for people who are, I guess, in the VC space, right? Getting funding at a ridiculous uh, amount, mainly because the founder is taking money off the table as well. Yep. Typically, it's like oftentimes the second round, the Series B founders would, will take money off the table to kind of to be able to sleep better at night. Overinvested in one startup, I think, is a good way to think about it. Last thing that we haven't discussed is I've seen some folks kind of find a CEO or a manager, like an operation manager. Um, now, nah, that operations manager is not the right word. It's more like a CEO to run the thing. And you couldn't do that in the early stages. But if you're north of a million, is there budget there? If you decided you did want to step away, can you find someone who is really good enough that you trust to keep the company going while you step away to do something else? I mean, I think this is a little bit like the model. You know, when we look at the folks who have run SaaS apps for really long periods of time, like let's take the Basecamp guys, they're not still working on that first product. They would be bored out of their mind. Like founders are too, you know, we get too bored with stuff. They've rewritten it multiple times. Now they've launched Haystack. They launched a bunch of stuff over the years. So that's how they stay invested. If you think about it, they're just starting a bunch of companies, but really they're not. They're just starting a bunch of products under the umbrella of the company. So that's that's a dream scenario. And I think most of us can't do that. But if that's what you need, if you feel like, well, I had this company's running really well and I can find someone good to run it. I and mean, there's obviously a huge risk here, right? That you find the wrong person, that the company tanks, you know, so maybe you sell part of it to take money off the table and you find someone to replace you and then go on to do your next act if that's something of interest. Yeah, I've known several people that have done this. I've actually known more people that have had success doing it than basically ended up with the wrong person and had to come back. Yeah, and that and it's something I have never done. 
And so it always seemed really scary to me and like I couldn't find the right person and on and on and on a bunch of insert a bunch of excuses here about why I didn't do it. But it is something I wish I had, you know, potentially evaluated, you know, earlier with some of the apps that I've had. Thanks for that question, James. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is about starting with no audience and selling at higher price points. And the person says, in two previous podcast episodes, I've heard you talk about startups having no audiences and selling their product with significant MRR. And I'd love to hear more about this. I've started my own SaaS product earlier this year, and I'm doing the cold outreach route with some success. However, apart from what Steli FD writes, there are very few other resources as to how to get going when you're first starting out. So this was another one where I wasn't saying don't start with no audience. I was saying taking that that B2C audience and trying to transition. Yeah, we already covered this. But the idea is, I think having an audience would be great. But if you don't, how do you start selling at higher price points? And to me, it's like cold email is the one that, that everyone does because it's worth doing. I think AdWords is another one that's really expensive. But if you have any type of cash to pour into it, you don't need that many leads if you are selling at higher price points. And it's going to be so consultative anyways. Um, that you're going to want, you're going to be getting on demos and getting in conversations with folks. But with that, what are your thoughts on this, Ruben? So I'm wondering what people mean when they say no audience. You kind of covered it a little bit, but are they thinking just any sort of audience at all or like more like the personal brand type of thing? I think she means no, like no reach, really no audience. Nothing, starting from zero. Yeah, kind of like no launch email list. Because if you had an email list, you know, that was interested in hearing about the product when it launches, then you would just do that. But I think she does mean like, I literally have no, I've made the traditional developer mistake, right? I built some stuff. Maybe I was having conversations, but I did no marketing. Start marketing the day you start coding. Start marketing before you start coding. I mean, just, you know, take my advice, please, so that you don't wind up in this position. But it's obviously very common for people to wind up in that position. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not in that position, by the time that you launch, everybody starts out off that way, or most people do, right? You start with nothing, then you build it up. I mean, it's uh, really is just marketing, just at the earliest stages when you don't have anything. Kind of going back to the first question, it's about figuring out, you know, your target customer is, uh, how do they buy, where do they hang out? And then, you know, kind of doing things that are a little, they're, they're work that, that take time to build up. Some, some things are a little bit faster, like paid acquisition, if you can make that work. I don't know, mo- most people that I, that I know don't make that work very early on. Maybe there are just too many unknowns at, at that point. Partnerships, which work really well at any stage that I've, I've seen a lot of people make those work. They're, they're good because you can get in front of a big audience really quickly. It does take some work, but I like those. And I really like SEO, which takes time. That one, I wouldn't, I don't know. I, I tend to start SEO and content marketing before launching the product because I have I've experience with it and I'm confident that I can, you know, do the research to get the right keywords and, and do the work to uh, start ranking for the terms by the time that you know, the product is released. I think for a lot of people, I'd probably, before investing a lot of time in uh, SEO and content marketing, I'd probably just, I get more confidence in the product, in what I'm selling, and that it's going to work before really investing heavily in that. Investing some time in that is, is, is always good, but I'd probably start with some of the other things first. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I don't, I don't have much to add to that. So Ruben, thanks again for coming on the show. 
Well, thanks. Thanks for the uh, invite. Uh, these are fun. I like the Q&A ones, listening to them and uh, now actually participating in one. That's great. So if folks want to find out more about what you're up to, they can go to docsketch.com, which is an electronic signature app, and you're killing it over there, as well as bidsketch.com, which is proposal software for, well, it's for everyone now. I always, yeah. you know, I think back, <laughs> you did such a good land and expand, right? Proposal software made for designers. That was like the first year or something. And then the next nine years or 10 years has been uh, proposal software. So yeah, now that's like 10% of the of the customer base. Yeah. Yep, but it got you traction in the early days. So yep. thanks again, man. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Thanks again to Ruben for coming on the show. If you want to find him on Twitter, his username is EarthlingWorks. We only have a handful of questions for our next Q&A show. So if you have a question for us, you can leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. And you can attach a voicemail. Voicemails always go to the top of the stack or send a text question and I'll read it out for you. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to us in any podcatcher. Visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.